Good morning. I'm really excited today uh, because I get to stand up here and preach God's Word. Also because we're starting a new book in the Bible. And I chose the book closest to Matthew. (laughs) And it's not the Italian prophet Malachi. I just need you to know this, okay? Uh, We're in Malachi. We're starting Malachi today. And I'll just tell you right off the bat, it's a book that was written like 2,500 years ago. But it has a message that is, is uncanny in how much it relates to our life today. And how similar many of the things that they were going through internally, spiritually, are to what we go through today. So I'm really excited about Malachi, and I know you will be too. I want you to open up Malachi chapter 1, and I invite you to stand with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 today as we read God's word. Malachi chapter 1 verse 1 the oracle of the word of the lord to israel by malachi i have loved you says the lord but you say how have you loved us is not esau jacob's brother declares the lord yet i have loved jacob but esau i have hated I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you that you are here, and we thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, as we, as we think now upon the things you have said, that you would change our hearts, that you would rearrange our thinking, that you would, would lead us to want more than anything to love you with all our hearts and to have that reflected in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. You know, the Olympics just started and you've got the opening ceremonies and there were even events before the opening ceremonies, right? Well, it's interesting about Matthew. We've got to do some opening ceremony kind of stuff. We've got to get some, some intro, some background of where is Malachi coming from and what got him to this place and all that. So we're going to get some backstory today. But Malachi jumps in with both feet right off the bat. And, and these verses we're looking at today, as you can tell by what we just read, are not like filler intro stuff this is big stuff this is this is important this is weighty in fact i mean he addresses the elephant in the room right away i've loved you god says and the people say how have you loved us they question god's love 
What we see in Malachi, by the way, is a dialogue between God and his people. And God telling them what has happened and gone wrong in their lives and and the people questioning the truthfulness of it. And so this series is called Objection Overruled. And today, how have you loved us? So first, an introduction to Malachi. It was written a long time ago, around 450 BC. And it's an old book with a very fresh message for us today. Malachi occupies a very unique position in the Old Testament. And not just because of where it is in the order. Not just because it's the last book of the Old Testament or the last of the minor prophets. The reason why Malachi's position is so unique is that it comes at the beginning of a 400 year stretch of time where God gives no new revelation. This is coming. The people don't know it, but God is going to enter a time when he is going to go off the prophecy grid and give no fresh revelation for 400 years. When God speaks again, it will be to announce that he is mere months away from keeping the promise he made very early in human history. The promise to send a deliverer. The promise to send the Messiah. His son, Jesus the Messiah. So the time between the giving of the promise and its fulfillment was so long, it seemed to the people as if God had forgotten, as if God didn't care, as if God wasn't going to keep His word. Now the coming of Christ was a triumphant proclamation and declaration by God of his utter faithfulness to his word and it indicted all who doubted his promises and the people of Malachi's time were definitely doubting God's promises they were doubting his love they were doubting his care and his promises so if it sounds familiar it's because it is we are very prone to doubt God's love and to doubt God's care and doubt his promises now I want to tell you where Malachi falls in the Old Testament prophets. They really fall into three categories. The first would be the pre-exile prophets who prophesied before the Babylonian captivity. People like Isaiah and Micah and Jeremiah. Then there are the prophets that prophesied during the Babylonian captivity, the exile prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel. And then there are the post-exile prophets those who prophesied after the people returned to their homeland. This is Malachi. He's in that group. Also Haggai and Zechariah. So let's talk a little bit about the captivity. People talk a lot about the Babylonian captivity and we kind of talk about it in hazy ways. And so I want to give you a little bit of background on that. The captivity refers to the period of time that God's people spent in Babylon And that captivity came about in three stages. Go back all the way to 605 BC. Some Jews were taken into captivity and it included Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then 597 BC, 10,000 more Jews were taken, including Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and Ezekiel the prophet. Then in 586 BC, They basically, the Babylonian army went and took everybody 
from Jerusalem, destroyed the city, and took captive practically everyone who remained, including King Zedekiah. But then the captivity came to an end. God rescued his people out of it, and in 538 B.C., Babylon was captured by Persia. There's a lot of reasons we should be thankful for Persia. Among them, this, and kebabs and hummus and baba ganoush, right? But King Cyrus of Persia issued a decree letting, his, letting the people go, letting the Jews go. There's a slide up here we're going to put up um, which kind of gives how the people returned. They returned in three waves. This slide will be up on our website this week, so don't worry about, you know, trying to memorize it or anything. Um, just highlight, I'll say, the, the first return was 50,000 of them led by Zerubbabel, and that um, had a lot of accomplishments in it. 536 B.C., they rebuilt the temple, they restored the, the sacrificial system. And then a second group led by Ezra the priest in 458 B.C., and another group in 445 B.C., um, led by Nehemiah, and Nehemiah got a lot of work done, right? All the walls were rebuilt, and a a spiritual renewal took place. The people were excited. They They were trusting God once again, and it was great. Then Mel... Then... Nehemiah gets called back to, to, uh, to Persia. And during the time that Nehemiah is gone, somewhere between 432 and 425 BC, that's when Malachi prophesied. That's when his ministry took place during those years. So in brief, here's the deal. The people had returned from captivity. They were not in Babylon anymore. They were in their homeland The temple had been rebuilt. The walls had been rebuilt. The sacrificial system had been reinstituted. So you'd think it was awesome, right? That everything was hunky-dory. That everything was great. That that God had blessed them and they were so excited. But the interesting thing is, it should have been a good time. But it wasn't. It was not a good time. It was actually a real horrible time spiritually for the people. Now, before Malachi had come on the scene, temple rebuilt, sacrifices restarted, walls reconstructed, and and here's God doing all these amazing things, good, good things. But the people got depressed. The people started saying, it's not happening quick enough. What we think should happen isn't happening. And so they became uh, skeptical. They became indifferent spiritually and it was like this depression and this skepticism had them in a headlock and they just got frozen their religion became a matter of ritual the people's hearts became cold towards god and one another they were marked by apathy and and stinginess towards god and towards each other so you got to ask the question how did they get in such a funk when things should have been so good We go back uh, to Haggai and Zechariah and they had promised that God was going to make the temple better than even Solomon's temple. And the people figured the only way that's going to come about is if the Messiah himself comes back and his presence will make the temple glorious. They didn't see the Messiah coming back and they're thinking, you know, too much time has gone on. We think that we've been abandoned. 
we think we've been left out high and dry very interesting what was their problem they wanted they wanted fireworks they wanted a burning bush they wanted the red sea parted they wanted the stairway to heaven they they wanted the pillar of cloud and fire they wanted something dramatic from god and all they got and by the way it's a lot they got the word of god they got the word of god and it wasn't enough for them do you know that they were called to live by the bare word of god until he would again move mightily in dramatic ways in their midst and they found it really difficult they didn't like it they were accustomed to the the miraculous occurrences the big events and the daily life of trusting god and walking by faith and walking according to his word was distasteful to them so if it sounds familiar it is because it is there are so many similarities between them and us they were waiting for the messiah to come we are waiting for the messiah to return they needed to go on god's word with no new revelation and flashy miracles all over the place like you see in the old testament they were not the victims of bad timing by the way they were the perpetrators of a heart-based rebellion against god revealed in their words and their actions against him and the sad part was they didn't even realize it when it was pointed out you notice in this dialogue god keeps saying here's the here's the deal and they're like huh what no not us God starts, I have loved you. Well, really, show us. How have you loved us? It's really interesting. Plenty of people in our lives could say that to us, right? We say, I love you all the time to people, even to total strangers sometimes. And your, your spouse and your kids and your friends could very well say to you, you love me? Show me, right? It's very possible. But to tell the God of the universe, to tell the one true God, the God of the Bible, who's revealed himself and shown himself faithful over and over and over again, to tell him, no, you haven't loved us, is beyond incredible. It's it's unbelievable, isn't it? But it happened. Let's look at verse 1. You know, it starts very simply, by the way. Very, very simply. He begins by giving three clues into what this book is and who it's addressed to and who delivered it. And, and they're really very, very basic and, and very clear. What is this book of Malachi? Well, it says in verse 1, it's the oracle of the word of the Lord. Very interesting, Malachi is the only prophet who puts the word oracle and the word of the Lord in the same sentence the oracle is the burden the message the prophecy and the word of the lord the burden of god's word and it's to very clearly to israel to god's chosen people and it's through malachi malachi is the messenger his name means god's messenger malachi isn't standing before the people and saying you know i've had some thoughts this week i'd like to share with you you know, I've made some observations about your lives and I need to point some things out to you. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm bringing the burden of the word of God. I'm bringing God's word to you. This isn't my word. I'm the messenger. First in a number of dialogues now, 
We'll look at verses 2 through 5, okay? This is the first dialogue between God and his people, and he is answering their objections. He's overruling their objections. Verse 2, God declares his love for the people. I have loved you. One thing to, to point out here is that there is no past tense in the Hebrew here, but instead it's the idea that God is saying, I love you. Okay, and he says, I've loved you, says the Lord, but they come back with, how? No, you haven't. We doubt that. So instead of receiving these wonderful assurances from God, God's love is questioned. Think about it. 500 years earlier, God had shown his faithfulness to David very clearly over and over again. A thousand years earlier, he's showing his faithfulness to Abraham. They have the history. They know. And here they're telling God, no, we're the people that you have left out in the cold. God is telling them, here's what you've said. We don't know if they said it out loud or if they just said it in their hearts. But their doubt is beating down any trust they might have had. And, and it's a twisted reality that they're bringing out. And, and God is saying, you're hard of hearing. I'm going to just yell it really loud. It's like they're wearing um, hearing aids. And they're, they're, the battery's gone. The, 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 the volume's turned down. He's like, I'm going to get it right up in your ear and shout it to you then. And, and here's what he says to them. He says, basically, you don't know how loved you are. You are so loved. Look how blessed you are. Now, he's going to tell them in a very wise, sage-like, Yoda-like way. I mean, it's very like, what? What did he just say? We're talking about hate now? Poor Esau. He's going to recount to them. He's going to recall to them the evidence of his love for them. And I want you to take this as God also recounting the evidence of his love for you. Don't keep it back 2,500 years ago. Those guys are all gone. We're here today. This is for us today. I'll give you the main point for today. Christians should not doubt God's love. And you go, wait a minute. I know lots of Christians do. I do. Well, so am I a lame Christian? We'll get to that. Christians should, doubt, should not doubt God's love because the evidence is overwhelming. The past, present, and future evidence of God's love is just overwhelming. Someone would, might well say, you know, we see through a glass dimly, and so it doesn't always seem like it. I get that. I get that. God is in the process of, of cleaning the glass and even renewing it. And he went to the cross. You need to remember, he went to the cross. We see at this stage in time, it's very clear to us that he went to the cross because of his love for us. God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this part we know. Christians should not doubt God's love. The evidence is overwhelming. And so he tells his people, first and foremost, look, I've loved you in the past. I chose you. Look at verses 2 and 3. And he says it in this weird way that we're like, what? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? 
Now his answer to the people's objection takes them back to a very crucial event in Isaac's family. They all knew it. They didn't have to go, so what does it mean by hate? Okay, they didn't have to get that. They got this. God is contrasting his choosing of Jacob and his not choosing of Esau. And it's not as boldly stated in, in Genesis 25, 23, when it talks about the older will serve the younger and, and so on. But it is, it is the idea that in his, in his sovereign grace, God chose Jacob over Esau. And it was a choice that was basically then, quote, unquote, hating Esau. The thing we got to remember is when we hear what God does, we immediately think how sinful people think. Whether we hear about hate or jealousy or whatever. And you just need to know this. God's hate is loving. God's hate is holy. God's hate is kind. So it's a different kind of hate than you have when you hate on people. All right? We've got to remember this. And Paul used, in Romans 9, Paul used this verse and used it to illustrate the doctrine of election. Now what happens is, God is saying, I love you. I chose you. And by the way, everybody didn't get chosen. First and foremost, Esau. And he goes on to talk about Edom. Esau and Edom both mean red. They're the, same, the, the descendants of Esau. They're messed up too. This is not about that, by the way. God is using them as an illustration. So he says, I've loved you in the past. You were chosen by me. You're my own. And then he says in verse 4, I've loved you in the present, basically. I'm giving you daily help and assurance and you can only look back 50 years or so and see how much help I gave you in rebuilding the walls and in rebuilding the temple and in reinstituting the, the sacrificial system. Verse 4, he says, look, if Edom says, we are shattered but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts say, uh-uh. No, they won't. I'll tear down what they build. God's like, you know what? They're going to be called the people with whom God is angry forever. But you're not. You're not those people. You're the people that I'm helping every day. You're the people I'm giving, I'm giving resources to, to do what I've called you to do. And by the way, this is not the time to start going, hey, this isn't fair. Just receive it, okay? God's using this example. It's a big example from the Old Testament. Don't get hung up on the, I don't think it's fair. What you'll be doing there is doubting God's love. Please believe me. God's love is in the past. They were chosen. He's saying, look, look, open your eyes. Remember, you can just look down the road. Look at the Edomites. They got a a desert waste with jackals. There's coyotes or whatever, right? All over the place. There's coyotes near my house. They're just slinking around, looking for scraps going on the edge of the road. It's a wasteland in the desert, God says, for the Edomites. And it's going to be that way. And if they build, I'm tearing it down. What happened when God's people tried to build? A bunch of Edomites (laughs) tried to get them not to build. Most likely, the enemies mentioned in Ezra 4 and Nehemiah 4 probably included uh, Edomites or Amalekites. So God is giving a, a special curse directed at them. It would, it would be kind of a weird kind of encouragement to the people of Israel. 
All right? Just, just go with it, all right? You just got to go with it. Don't think too long on this. Think about God's love, okay? Just think about God's love in choosing his people and in giving them daily help and assurance. And now verse 5. He says something about the future. He says your, your eyes are going to see it. Do you see that? You're going to say something too. What are you going to say? Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. By the way, this is the first of three or four such phrases in Malachi where God says that he is going to go beyond the borders of Israel. We're going to see it in chapter 3 and 4 too. And this whole idea that God is going to bring them to eternal glory. A Christian looking at this, someone who's believing in the finished work of Christ and his, his sacrificial death in their place and his burial and resurrection and his, re, his, his coming return is going to say, you know what? God's love in the future is assured to me because what I know the Bible says about it. When Jesus says, no one's going to snatch my people out of my hand. When he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God is not going to leave his people. God is not going to forsake his people. God is not going to let his people uh, leave them out hanging high and dry. Love led to a cross, led our Savior to die in our place. But still we know we doubt God's love. That's one of the reasons why we need ongoing encouragement from other believers and ongoing teaching from God's word and being in God's word ourselves every single day because I've said it before, we leak. Sometimes like a sieve, but for sure like one of those spaghetti colanders that, that just kind of, the water goes through. I'm going to get as many Italian references as I can today, probably, I don't know. And Persian too. Uh, I'm not, but I'm going to talk about Persia, because Persia was protecting Israel at this point. Now, what, what would lead you to doubt God's love? You know, you might be able to pinpoint this a little bit. Look in the past. Stuff past sometimes leads someone to doubt God's love. They say, you know, I've been hurt. Somebody hurt me. Or I felt rejected. Or, or there's seeming silence from God. You've been hurt by a person, and it's so easy to project that hurt onto God and think that God must be like that too. Now, he wants you to transfer the hurt to him in the way that 1 Peter 5, 7 talks about. Casting all your anxieties upon him, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. That's what you should do when it relates to God. There's a lot of people that will reject God's grace and, and they will even go to the point, even people that have professed to be believers will go to the point and say, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an atheist now. And I think a lot of those people in that, in that state are, are just hurt and angry primarily. And I understand. I mean, I want to give them a hug. And I don't mean that in a, in a flippant way. I mean, they need someone to come alongside them and love them. Because they accuse a God that they say they don't believe in of being unkind and unfair and unconcerned. And the story, everyone's got the story behind the pain and it, it, it makes you hurt with them, right? When you hear a story of someone going through horrendous things and they're now saying, I don't want anything to do with God and you look and you go, wow, they, they probably came by that view somewhat innocently. But still, but still, and by the way, if that's you today, I, I want to say this. And if you don't remember anything today, 
that I say except this, then you've got to remember this. God says, I love you. And he says it to you. He's not, he's not saying this impersonally. I, I want you to let the words, I love you, from God sink down into every nook and cranny of your soul. You need those words. Think of it. Some of you have gone a long time without anyone saying to you, I love you. But God says, and it's over and over and over ago in this book, that he loves you. And, and most specifically, Jesus loves you. I want you to hear these words. If you're a Christian today, I want you to hear these words. I'm going to read them slowly. If you're not a Christian today, I want you to hear these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. What I want you to know today is that God is good. God is kind. No matter if you think to the contrary, no matter if, if you've been led to believe something to the contrary, we read in God's Word that this is love that not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice the the propitiation is the big word the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not just for our sins but for the sins of the world and I want you to consider this if you do not believe today I want you to consider that there is also a lot more to say about who God is and that he is good and great and holy and just but if you are hurting today, if you are bleeding out spiritually, you just need to hear that, that Jesus loves you. That he really, really loves you. And I know it is possible to be a Christian for a long time. And because of circumstances and because of all sorts of things that come into our lives, that we can, 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 can get to that place where we begin to doubt and God does not want his people to doubt. It doesn't mean you're a lame Christian. But it means that God wants to pick you up and put you on the right road in, in your thinking and in, 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 your, in your heart as it pertains to what he thinks of you. But there are a lot of things in the past that can really lead us to doubt God's love. There are stuff in the present too. All sorts of things in the present. I think, first of all, of sin. You know, Malachi is pointing out the people's sin. It would be easy to say, you know, I, I can't think of anything that they would have in the past where they would go, hey, God isn't doing this. But I'll tell you, in the present, they were sinning against God. It was unconfessed. It was unchecked. It was uncontrolled. They had hard hearts towards God. They're saying, you don't love me to God. You don't love us. And they were misunderstanding who God is and they had an inaccurate knowledge of God. They should have known better. They had the promises. They had the word of God. Sometimes you'll misunderstand God and you'll say, well, God disciplined me so I guess he doesn't love me. 
Hebrews 12 tells us that if you get disciplined by your father, it's because he loves you. And if you get disciplined by God, it's because he loves you. And he wants you to share his holiness. He wants you to be pleasing to him. Some people, they just have a doubt and a fear of people or of what God has said. And they create some kind of anti-gospel frame of mind that they actually think is humble. And they acquire it in kind of weird ways sometimes. And, but they end up, their hearts end up doubting God's love. God wants you to live assured of his love. I don't think we see Jesus looking upon himself with disapproval or dismay or despair. And God wants to make Christians, is making Christians like Christ. I think there's some Christians I know that stay in this, in this realm of consistently going back to God doesn't love me because of what's going on in my life. And you sometimes want to shake people and just say, come on, you've got to get this. But you don't. You've got to hug them. And you've got to walk with them through that and understand they're going something through, through something that you might not completely understand. Sometimes it's immaturity. Someone will say, I don't get what I want, and so I don't think God loves me. And James makes it really clear that that's because you're acting on wrong motives to p- consume it upon your own lusts. Sometimes it's insecurity. Lots of times it's insecurity. I have sinned so much, someone will say, that God couldn't love me. And a lot of times we think of that as a very humble stance, and it's actually one of the most prideful stances you can have. How about idolatry? When everything goes well, peace and security, it's very easy to get off your guard and start thinking that someone else loves you more. The people that Malachi was was preaching to was protected by Persia. They were loving the kebabs and the hummus and the naan and all sorts of things, and the baba ganoush probably. But they stopped thinking that God was their security and probably put their, put their trust in the army of Persia. I'll tell you what else will mess you up in the present when it comes to knowing the love of God, and that's the enemy. The devil who is your enemy if you're a Christian The Bible says he steals, kills, and destroys. That he tells lives that you end up believing. Because Jesus said in John 8, he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. But we end up believing lies that are not in line with the word of God. It doesn't come from God, it comes from Satan. First Peter says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan will even leverage your well-meaning friends at times. How about Job's wife? Hey, Job, curse God and die. It's not going well. How about his friends? Hey, Job, you sinned. Just confess it, repent, and it'll be all right for you. Sorry comforters for them. But the devil is cunning, and he will use, and you must, you must be on your guard. And then, of course, Another thing that might cause you to doubt God's love is thinking about the future and being afraid and fearing a dreary future because your past and your present issues can cloud your outlook on future blessings that God has in store. And you start forgetting the promises of God that are very clear. And I will just say this too, is it's very popular to kind of say, well, I'm going to say everything and anything I want to God. It doesn't matter because I'm just being honest. 
And they'll point to the, the Psalms. I will too. But here's what you need to remember about the Psalms. David was singing the blues a lot in the Psalms, but not all the time. But you go to the Psalms, and, and this is what you try to prove me wrong on this. You go to the Psalms, and you see David start in the pit, and he is singing the blues. But the Psalms always end in a note of praise to God. It's always, you know, I'm feeling like this, but God is good. I'm feeling like this, but God is great. I'm feeling like this, but God's going to overcome. And so he doesn't stay there. The wrong thing to do is wallow in how bad things are and, and stay in the depths of despair. Because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David didn't stay in the depths of despair. So don't make your pouring your heart out to God pity party central and just stay down there and think, well, I guess God's just going to, he's not raising me up out of it, so I guess I should stay here. By the way, I think sometimes we've made it all about feeling better about yourself. It's not about us feeling better about ourselves. It's about us glorifying God. And you glorify God first and foremost. You want to love Jesus. You love Jesus more than anyone or anything on earth. You're going to end up feeling better about yourself as a byproduct. But it will not be your ultimate aim. It will not be your ultimate goal. Because it won't be about you. It will be all about Jesus. That's what it needs to be about. All about Jesus. Let's talk briefly as we begin to close here about what assures us of God's love. And I think we're going to go back to the past, present, and future again. God assures us, think about the past. God assures us of his love, and then our response to God assures us of his love. And some simultaneous things are happening that cause us to turn around. First of all, in the past, if you're a Christian, you know God chose you. But what you also know is that you acknowledged him in worship. You turned to him. You acknowledged your sin. You repented. You, you said, I'm self-centered and I want to be Christ-centered. And you acknowledged your need. You said, God, I need you. And you know how weak I am. Hebrews 4 tells us that we have a high priest who understands our weaknesses. And he says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'm going to give you rest. You have God's assurance that his love is everlasting. So, read Psalm 136. The phrase at the end of every little stanza, for his love is everlasting. Every verse. How about John chapter 15? John chapter 15, and, and Jesus speaking about his his love. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my commandments and abide in his love. Look, I've got to point something out to you about the Hebrew word for love. Jesus loves you. Now, now Malachi 1-2 says, God says, I have loved you. Now, there is a fact. He's stating a fact. But there are two Hebrew words for love in play in the Old Testament. The first is aheb, and the second is hased. Hased is better translated as kindness, but not in the modern English sense. It's loving kindness. It's mercy. But aheb, which is the word that is used here in Malachi, implies a very fervent direction 
of mind and heart, tenderness of heart towards the objects of the love. It describes the unspeakable love of God for his people, the tender mercies of God for his people, who is in covenant relationship with his people. This word is used 250 times in the Old Testament. It is a strong emotional attachment for and desire to be in the presence of the one who is loved. This is God loving us. By the way, the first time agape love shows up, and we know that from the New Testament, the first time agape love shows up in the Bible, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, they translate the word aheb in, in Hebrew to agape. It's the closest word. So this Hebrew word, when God is saying, I have loved you, and they said, how have you loved us? They're, they're using the equivalent to agape love. They're talking about God's love here. God's love in Christ, by the way, is not sentimentality. It's not situational feeling or seasonal choice. It's not filler for people who, who, who just want to feel good. It's a concrete commitment on the part of God to bless you and not curse you. And it is ironclad, it is firm, it is resolute, it's unchanging. We always want feelings. We say, oh, if you, if you love me, you'll make me feel good. Well, if you're loved, you're going to feel good. But you've got to go with the facts of God's love. The feelings will, will, will come, but it can't all be feeling-oriented or you'll be trying all the time to feel something. And we live in a very feel-something culture, don't we? Let me talk about why we, should, why we should be assured of God's love in the present. You know, God's love changes us. The gospel says God love cha- God's love changes us. Religion says God will love you if you change. But Jesus says, I love you, and I'm going to change you. And, and God is always providing for us in, in the present. Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. By his word, we know that God is, is seeking and saving the lost and he's providing for those he saves and the Holy Spirit indwells those he saves and he uses his word in our lives to change us. But he also uses his church. It's interesting that Malachi means God's messenger. His church is, should be filled with messengers to one another and the world. Look around you right now. I want you to look around you. Turn your head and look around you. Look behind you, okay? And look, look side to side. These are messengers of God to remind you that you are loved by God. This is not like an Easter egg hunt where we're all going to try to get as much as we can for ourselves. I could tell you a story about that from when I was a kid. Another day. But... Um, this is not about us trying to get as much of God's love to make ourselves feel good and put it in our backpack and stick it in our pockets and, and go, ha, I got more than you. This is a group that should be saying to each other all the time, God loves you. Jesus loves you. You are loved. You are beloved. You are accepted. You are, you are cherished. And interesting that we know that God loves us often by how we're loved by people in the body of Christ. And people who are not loved by people in the body of Christ sometimes doubt God's love. And we can understand that. See, God loves you and provides for you in the present, not so you will look inward, but you will look outward and and love other people. Mark Driscoll said it this way, therapeutic theology focuses on you. The Bible places more emphasis on your neighbor. God doesn't just love you, he also loves your neighbor. 
You've got to love. And if you go with a therapeutic view of God that he's going to make you feel better all the time, you're going to be focused on you and your neighbor will be ignored. God loves you. Specifically, Jesus loves you. And he doesn't want you doubting that. Because in the future, we're told that there is laid up for us the crown of righteousness for all who have loved his appearing. There is this blessing that God gives in saving us. There is this gospel blessing. Beyond the borders of Israel, as Malachi puts it, the fruitful gospel beyond the borders of Israel, the power of God unto salvation beyond the borders. Most of us come from outside the borders of Israel. We're Gentiles. And so God will bless and love in the future and you can fruitfully live in that assurance because of the gospel truth. The beautiful feet that deliver the life-changing, transforming news, the dynamite of God that God loves people and Jesus died for, for lost sinners and wants to conform them to the image of Christ. Anybody who doubts God's love today, you need look no further than the cross of Christ. Christ. 